everyone. This is the Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime, suspense, and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I introduce this week's awesome guest, I'll just remind you that the Crime Cafe box set, that's nine books in the box set, and the Crime Cafe short story anthology can be purchased online at any online retailer for the very reasonable price of $1.99 for the box set and 99 cents for the anthology. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Kobo, Apple, whatever. So with that said, uh, the buy links, by the way, are on my website, debbiemack.com, D-E-B-B-I-M-A-C-K. And with that said, I'm thrilled to introduce my guest, Lawrence Pelter, fellow New Yorker and thriller, thriller author. It's great to have you on, Larry. Oh, it's great to be here. And please, let's stick with Larry. <laughs> Larry, awesome. Yeah. If I get Lawrence, you know, I'm going to assume that I've done something wrong or I'm in, I'm in big trouble. Larry works just fine. I know what you mean, because when people call me Deborah, I always think of my mother. Deborah. Uh-huh, exactly. Exactly. Um, I first got to know your work through the Stephanie Chalise thrillers, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. You're about the only one who is who does pronounce it correctly. <laughs> Stephanie Chalise, I like that. Thanks. What a great protagonist she is. What inspired you to go with that series, to write it? I was a big, and I still am, a big fan of Nelson DeMille, and I got sucked in by his John Corey character. Um, at the time, he only had a couple of books in that, you know, in that series. But now he's up to, I guess, about seven or eight in the uh, in the Corey series. And I liked what I liked about him was he had this acerbic personality. He's always making smartest comments, and I, you know, I like the uh, I like the punch of you know getting you know of having a smile when I read, you know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of great authors, and, uh, you know, you can't take anything away from them, but they're very, very dry, and I'll just go through pages and pages of description, you know, how he approached the crime circle, and it was an inner circle, and out of circle, and a third circle, and it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it takes you four pages to get through the crime circle, and, you know, it's like, what the, you know, but I, <laughs> I really like, you know, DeMille's character, and I said, you know, I'd like to do something like that. I hadn't written at the time, and I can't. I can't copy John Corey, so I kind of borrowed some of his personality traits, and I, you know, I, I imbued them in a woman, so to speak. So, excellent. Chal- yeah, so is supposed to be fun, you know, quirky, um, a little too savvy for her own good, a little too smart alecky for her own good. But you know, I think that makes the character, you know, memorable and fun. Yes, absolutely, and. It underscores how she's a human being. She's not like a, I don't know, a stereotypical woman or whatever you want to call it. Right. I like the fact that that you can write that. So much is said about men writing women and women writing men. Right. I don't see why men can't write women as authentically as women can. Right. Well, I'm several books into it now. You know, when I first started out, um, there were some comments saying that uh, she wasn't a real woman, that she was too much of, you know, a, a man's vision of a woman. And some of that, I think, was real, all right, you know, and I think I've, I've kind of absorbed those comments and, and refined a personality. 
as I went along. You know, she's seven, you know, seven full books and three, three novellas into the series at this point. So yeah, she's gone through a lot of changes and, you know, there's a life arc involved. You know, she starts out as a single, single gal detective and then she, you know, gets a partner that she falls in love with. And, you know, by the seventh book, she's got a child, you know, she's married and has a child. So, you know, she's gone through her, uh, through uh, an evolution, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And do you picture writing more of that series? And where do you think she'll go from here? I do picture writing more of it. I haven't um, begun to craft the next book yet. And that's because I just had so many things on, on the back burner. And at a certain point, you either have to move them up in, in the line or you know they're never going get to get looked at. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I've done. And you know, as, as you probably know, I'm involved in a, in a new project. So that's taken up the bulk of my time. Yes. Uh, tell me about the Chloe Mathers series, the thrillers, the Chloe Mathers thrillers. How does Chloe differ from Stephanie? And is this a trilogy, or do you plan to make plan to make more more out of the series? Well, what what I've done. Um, well, let me take a step back. Uh, Chloe Mather is a little bit. Um, more straight-laced than Chalice is. She comes from a military background. Um, as the story goes, she was she was a Marine or an ex-Marine, now an FBI agent. And in the Marines, she was one of the few women who actually saw active combat. Normally, and you know, I can't I can't speak for uh, the armed forces at this moment in time, but when she was in the armed forces, most female Marines were um, clerical or technical, you know, that kind of thing, or served as liaisons. They never really saw the, the battlefield. But she was assigned to um, what they call the female engagement team in the Middle East. And what her assignment was, or what the, the they call it the FET, what the FET was, was supposed to do, was sort of broker the relationship between um, Muslim women and the military because in that culture, um, men are not allowed to speak with women they're not married to. So she's able to do that as a woman, and she's out in, you know, in, in the Middle East, you know, during you know, um, some of the military offensives, and because she's out there, she you know, gets pulled into, she got pulled into a couple of you know, real, real situations, rescues, you know, she was under siege a couple of times, she's a sharpshooter, so, Hers is, she's a little bit more of a, um, she's a little bit of a stiffer character. Interesting. Very yeah. interesting. I'm going to have to check those books out. Okay. Oh, the second part of what you asked, do I see more uh, Mather? What I did is to kind of keep Mather going and keep Chalice going at the same time. Mm-hmm. I've combined them in a new series. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so what I did was, um, in Chalice's last book, she was critically injured, she's recovering, but because of uh, NYPD protocol, she's on uh, medication. And she's gonna be on medication for another six or eight months. And NYPD demanded that she's off medication completely for a full year before she can see active duty. We're doing normal tour as a detective. And she just couldn't handle it anymore. She's too much of an A personality. She needed to get it back out in the field. So she leaned on her friend, Herb Ambler, who's an SSA at the New York City Depart- FBI Bureau. 
and he pulled enough strings, he had enough clout to get her moved over. And now she's an FBI agent, and Mather's an FBI agent, so they're sort of rocking it together. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Thank you. I'm interested that you combine the two characters because I could do the same thing with the, the series that I'm working on, actually. I'm starting right. a new series, and it also takes place in Maryland, and you've got me thinking now. <laughs> um, I think my first taste of your funniest writing was the Frank Mango novel. Okay. <laughs> That's where I really got to see you just kind of go over the top a little bit, and I loved it. It was that wisecracking detective with the name Mango, and he was mm -hmm. always getting jibes about that. Right. Uh -huh. um, was that a standalone, or is that part of a, a series you'd like to write? I'd like to write more Frank Mango at some point. There is, um, there was, you know, one, one book, uh, which is called Kiss of the Devil's Breath, and yes. then it was a, um, a novella or a long short story <laughs> that I <laughs> did with his character. And he's fun to write. You know, I, I try to pick characters that are fun to write. It actually came about um, before I was writing full time. I worked for a bank. And one of the people I was on the phone with all the time was a guy by the name of Frank Mango. Um, <laughs> you know, I met him once at some point, you know, but it was very briefly and, you know, it was not repeated. And the name just kept, you know, poking into my head. It's like I couldn't, you know, every time I heard Frank Mango, I said, oh, what a great name, you know, for a big, fat, rumple detective, you know? <laughs> it is. It's a great name. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, the, the actual Frank Mango that I, I took the name from, he was nothing like that. So <laughs> if he hears that, he doesn't think I picture him as this oaf, which I don't, but... Um, <laughs> But it's a wonderful name. Yeah. You should be honored. It's a very funny novel and good. I, Thank you. That's my personal recommendation to everybody listening. <laughs> You've also uh, collaborated with one of my uh, previous guests, Frank Sefiro, who is mm -hmm. also one of my favorite authors. Mm -hmm. And uh, the book is The Last Color. Uh, what can you tell me about that book and about your collaboration process? That was that was interesting. Um, Frank and I uh, had both contributed to an anthology, and that's where we, you know, we kind of met again online, not face to face, because I'm, I'm in New York, and at the time I think he was in Spokane. He's since relocated, but he's still out west, and we've never met face to face. Um, but I had this idea for a novel. I had a character that I had once used in a novel that I never pushed through to publishing. You know, I liked the character, but the story did not, you know, didn't grab me enough to, you know give it a full commitment. Um, so I, you know, I, I spoke to Frank and I said, look, you know, I'm looking to do a real police procedural. I said, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm a fake cop, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know cops. I've, you know, been involved with, with cops, but I'm not a cop. And I'd like to get um, a partner who really knows the police force, you know, from the inside. And, um, you know, we talked about it a little bit. We really didn't, um, kick it around too long. His biggest concern was that in all the anthologies, not the anthologies, in all the collaborations he's done, and he's done several, mm -hmm. they always had one voice. Or they had, no, I'm sorry, they had two voices. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't necessary to kind of synchronize anything, right? You had two different characters and they could play off each other. 
And in the book we wrote, we both picked the same voice. You know, I mean, we both took the same voice. So we were concerned that uh, when all was said and done, you read a chapter and say, that's a Larry chapter and that's a Frank chapter. And it would be very disconcerting and not good. Um, but it turns out that after, after you know, a few edits, you know, and a little smoothing around the edges, I couldn't tell what I wrote. And he couldn't tell what he wrote. So, you know, it seemed to work. You know, and then uh, finally we were going to send it out to some people to read, and they said no. So you know, every once in a while I'll, I'll come across something that I said, you know, that's that's one of your picadillos. I know you would say that, but I can't pick it up in the uh, in the dialogue. That's awesome. It yeah. just goes to show that this writing doesn't have to be a so a solitary process. It can be totally a collaborative process. Right. And it can work. It definitely works. As a matter of fact it's it's invigorating or energizing because well for two for more than one reason i mean you can also keep something else going on the side you know and this was one of the thoughts when i wanted to collaborate because i wanted to be a little more productive um and, but at the same time you know i'm capable of starting things independently but i usually concentrate on one book at a time um but this was different because an email would pop up and he would say, hey, I just completed chapter 16. And he'd send it over to me and I read and say, you know, this is great. Now this is, I know exactly what I'm going to do. And we would feed off each other. That's so, fantastic. Yeah, it was really, really a lot of fun. And Frank's a super guy. He's, he is. He's good to work with. He's smart. He's a good writer. And, you know, how can you complain about that? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well, this leads me up to my cousin Vinny. <laughs> And if, if you can believe this, I didn't see the movie until just this year. Oh, no. Don't and tell I me And I was that. just like, oh, my God, this is so good. It's so funny. And uh, I can't believe you didn't see it till now. I don't know if I can continue this. I know. Oh, come on. Come on. Give me, <laughs> cut me some slack here. There are okay. so many movies. Uh -huh. And I wasn't sure what to think of it. And But I kept hearing all this stuff about it. So I finally said, okay, I've got And, you know, as a lawyer, it's like, I'm a little bit okay about legal movies, but right. this one really nailed it at, at the same time that it was being funny. Right. I mean, there was stuff going on to where I said, yeah, I can actually picture that. <laughs> and, um, but it was so funny at the same time. And Marissa Tomai is just priceless in it. She is. As yeah. is, uh, of course, Joe Pesci, who's always priceless in everything. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, I just, your um, brush with, you know, the person who eventually led up to your deal on that, that mm -hmm. was, that was remarkable. Yeah, you know, I think, you know, my cousin Vinny, for, for some, whatever reason, I mean, I, you know, I'm originally from Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. I've kind of lived the Vinny experience, um, not so much with actual mob characters, but with, you know, guys, <laughs> guys from Brooklyn who were, you know, Kind of like, yeah, right, you know, I'm going to kick you in the teeth if you don't, you know, turn around and walk away. You know, I live with those people. And then when the movie came out 25 years ago, it was just, it touched me. You know, it was just so right on. Um, the guy who wrote the movie, Dale Warner, who's, you know, a real comic genius, not only did he write My Cousin Vinny, but he also wrote Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Ruthless People, three of the, you know, the funniest movies ever produced. Um, he's not from New York. He's, um, I think, from the Midwest originally, and he's been living out on the West Coast for, I think, forever. Um, 
but he had this his, this idea. Um, he originally started with a, a guy, I guess a guy he knew who had to continually take the bar exam, couldn't pass it, and he said, you know, what a great basis for a movie. Um, and he developed my cut, my cousin Vinny. So, yeah, I mean, you know, really resonated with me. It's the kind of movie that if you know I'm at home and I, you know, I'm getting ready to go out or have a meeting to go to, but the TV's on in the background because I always need some noise. I always need music on or the TV on. And you know, you know, you're doing whatever, and all of a sudden you hear, "Yeah, you blend," and that's it. You know, <laughs> I would like stop whatever I'm doing, you know, and like a robot, I would just sit in front of the TV and I'd relive the movie. And about two years ago, those were ex the exact circumstances that took place. And I said, you know what? He's making this guy's making me laugh <laughs> for 23 years. Uh, you know, as a writer, I think he deserves to know that. He hasn't been forgotten about it. The movie's still relevant and still funny. And um, I said, let me see if I can find out how to contact him. So I spent a little time online and I was able to, he has a website. I was able to find his website and, you know, a little contact screen, you know, not too big, you know, like an inch, inch high and two inches wide. And I went in there and I filled in the screen and I said, you know, you need to know that 25 years later, I'm still laughing my ass off what a great job you did, and I'm such a fan of the movie. And, you know, I said, well, enter, you know, send the message off. I'm never going to hear back. You know, he's Hollywood, so I'm just a lowly novel writer. You know, I'm dirt beneath his feet. I'm never going to hear back. And sure enough, um, within 20 minutes, he sent me back a two-page response um, telling me all kinds of things about the movie, not only you know his insights and his thought process but you know things that were really hard to believe um about the making of the movie uh, the most unbelievable was that the studio wanted to cut out marissa Tomei's character whoa you know i mean you know can you imagine that movie without mona lisa vito would have been nothing no uh, way you're right but they were very very um adamant about it and they actually said <clears throat> You either have to beef up her role or you have to cut her out. It's not going to stay stand the way it is. So, you know, that famous scene where they're out in the, uh, in the woods um, and she's marking, I'm sorry, marching back and forth on the deck with her biological clock speech. She's in, you know, the printed cat suit and she's, you know, just going off at him. Mm -hmm. That scene had to be added after the fact, or not mm -hmm. after the movie was complete, but, you know, during filming because they insisted that they keep beef up the character. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, so when you talk about, you know, things going wrong, you know, how could they for a minute think they could yank her out of the movie? That's, well, I attempted to say unbelievable, but unfortunately I can believe it. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh -huh. uh. It's, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. Let's just say sometimes unbelievable things happen but the right stuff get gets made anyway if you know what i mean sometimes yeah yeah sometimes. so yeah <laughs> yeah so. He, also, he also wanted um he had a vision of the rocky character which really was not joe pesci huh his, his original vision for the rocky for not well i gave it away for the vinnie character not the rocky character uh-huh more of a rocky, rocky balboa maybe uh -huh. not a guy who's punch drunk like Rocky is, you know, with slurred speech, but more of um, 
Um, underdog? He's an underdog, but he's also got some physical stature. And in his mind, oh. he also was a, um, a former amateur boxer. So he's, he's a bigger guy, you know, he's a bigger, stronger guy than, you know, you look at Joe Pesci, not that Joe, not that you could get anything over on Joe Pesci, right? He said, I make you laugh, you know, he'd go, <laughs> your butt. but um, his image was a bigger, like a locks of a guy, um, actually with a touch of dyslexia, because if you remember in the movie, he's always with the book, but he's struggling, he's making a face, he's putting it down, he's closing the book, mm -hmm. because he struggles to read, not that he has any intelligence deficit he just you know he struggles to read uh, and he wanted robert de niro to play Vinny gambini and this right this goes back you know the movie was released um in was 2000 in 1992 25 years ago uh five years before robert de niro made his first comic appearance and analyzed this which mm was super funny and he's you know Robert De Niro is just so funny as, as you know in comedy but it was five years before that movie came out and the studio head again said Robert De Niro make a comedy are you daft and basically laughed him off the lot and said well you know we're gonna hire Joe Pesci and of course thank god they did because Pesci was amazing you he know was. yes yeah, it was really amazing but uh, it's just interesting that you know these studio people, it's like, do they really know what they're doing? Whether they just look out when something comes out good? I mean, it's, it's bizarre. It is bizarre. Uh, speaking of um, Robert De Niro in comedies, have you ever seen Midnight Run? You know, I, I think I've caught part of it. I don't think I've ever seen the whole thing, but- It's hilarious. Yeah, what's the premise of that? Uh, a white collar criminal, well, an accountant steals money from, a, from a uh, gangster basically mm -hmm. basically the mafia right. a, a mafia don i guess and um he's arrested in los angeles but uh he skips bail mm -hmm. and uh a what do you call it bounty hunter bounty hunter played by um robert de niro is hired to to go to new york and find him he he f realizes he figures out that he's in new york and he has to get him back to LA. Mm -hmm. And the chain of events that they go through from getting from New York to LA it makes the comedy. I don't want to say much more than that. Oh, that's enough. Yeah, I'm gonna have to watch that. There's also a um a rival bounty hunter who okay. was hired by the same bail bondsman mm -hmm. who uh, you know, you'll see. <laughs> it's okay. just a, it, and um, Yafit Kadawitz in it as an FBI agent. His name is Alonzo Mosley. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, running jokes is that um, Robert De Niro, who plays a guy named Jack, mm -hmm. has stolen his uh, FBI ID and he goes around impersonating Alonzo Mosley. And <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it's just very, very funny. It's like the odd couple on the road. Oh, okay. Because the accountant is played by Charles Grodin. Mm -hmm. okay. So you can just picture this match. I mean, it's right. fantastic. It really is. Right. Mm -hmm. You should see it. So um, <laughs> having said that, um, I've, I'm reading both of your books, both the one that you co-wrote with 
Frank Zafiro and back to Brooklyn and right. join them. Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad you could be on the show today. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add before we conclude? Hmm. <laughs> what more can you say? Well, the only thing I can say is that um, writing Back to Brooklyn, which is the My Cousin Vinny sequel, is probably the most fun I've ever had as a writer. I mean, you know, just sitting down at the keyboard, you know, and listening to those two, you know, bicker in my head. It's just, you know, it keeps me going all day long. And, you know, when I finish writing for the day, it's like I just sat down and watched, you know, watched a great comedy movie. I'm not, I don't want to say great because I'm, you know, I'm writing. You, know, <laughs> I don't want to you were inspired by a great movie. Inspired by a great movie. Yeah. And this is what we hope to be the first in a series of books featuring Vinny and Lisa. Um, they'll sort of be a modern day Nick and Nord team, you know, not two stuffy Brits, but you know, <laughs> two, two, <laughs> two funny partners from, uh, from Brooklyn where Lisa does some investigation and of course Vinny litigates and, uh, you know, a, a third book, a second book is already in, in the works and we're also doing a novelization of the movie, um, with new scenes, some background and tidbits about the uh, uh, the writer's original thoughts that never made it onto the screen. Hmm. Um, so, you know, new enough and fresh enough to revive the story without just, you know, you know, making it a straight translation of what, you know, saw on celluloid. So. Well, Larry, that is fantastic. I'm very happy for you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, having, I'm having fun with it. That's wonderful. I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I know what you mean about the Brooklyn thing, because mm -hmm. I'm from Queens myself. Right. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So I know about that. <laughs> right. And ha with that, I will just say thank you very much, Larry, for being here today. And again, I'll remind you that you can get the Crime Cafe nine book set and short story anthology online at crimecafe.net or debbymac.com. Just go to Crime Cafe, the Crime Cafe link, and the buy button will be there. Buy buttons, whatever. <laughs> and until next time, uh, happy reading, and I'll see you in two weeks. Bye.